the the big moral dilemma I'm having is what do I do if if or when one of them dies before the other? So I, I, I could potentially they like they're a bonded pair. Um, they've been together forever and they're super social animals. I'm talking about my ferrets to the people uh, that aren't privy to such things. Um, so if one dies before the other, some ferrets will be fine. They'll, they'll go through a period of mourning and then they'll just get over it. Other ferrets, just like any other animal, they'll, they'll never get over it. Um, and even if you try to reintroduce another ferret that you run the risk of the ferret attacking them or trying to kill them or them just not getting along. So I don't know, but then it's like, I'm going to be in a perpetual cycle of just buying a new ferret every time one of them dies. You know what I, you know what I mean? It's like the, the cycle has to end at some point. So I don't know. That's, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like what I'm going to, I think what I would try to do is maybe that's when I would try to really integrate the ferret in with the cats. Mm, okay. they, I, I think there'd be a better chance of them getting along. Cause it's really my oldest ferret is the one that is prone to attacking the cats, but the youngest one just wants to play around and be friends. So, (laughs) so if Ren, (laughs) I know this is like a long answer to a very simple question of how long do ferrets live, but if Ren dies first, then I'm just going to try to get Kylo to be friends with the cats. That's the plan. I dig it. I dig it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) so, this is Josh Patterson. Uh, your the episode we did turned out to be one of um, the most talked about episode of mine that I've had in a while. Uh, kind of oh, similar cool. to the uh, episodes with the guys that were Orthodox, uh, where people are like, "What is this? What is this open theology you speak of?" And that actually. <laughs> really interesting and this crazy idiot and why did you bring him on the podcast (laughs) no 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 no. well you being a pastor uh comes with a certain amount of clout Mm. it almost which you want to say that (laughs) well is that weird for you to hear so that even in my so i um I have an appointment with your spiritual director on Friday, actually. Heck yeah. yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. You know, it was funny. My, and my mom listens to this, but in classic mom fashion, cause I, I don't remember how I was describing her, but uh, she said she is a, she's a Christian. Right. And I was like, yeah, mom. And, but then I was like, wait, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she yeah. is. <laughs> she I is. Guess. Yes. I guess she was making sure it wasn't, I guess, because the term like spiritual director, it could just be some like, you know, frou-frou person that's just like, oh, sure. look at the light within and everything will be fine. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. And like, it, it definitely has become that. But like spiritual direction actually is like a super ancient practice that dates back to like basically forever within christianity and i like i'm a firm believer that every single pastor needs to have a spiritual director like so 
many of the issues that arise just for pastors internally that then, you know, get presented as external nightmares. I think so much of that could be avoided if pastors were like given a spiritual director and the church paid for it. All of them. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like a strong believer in it. That was uh, uh, making the parallel again to uh, counselors. So uh, I had another friend die uh, last week and I found that out. So I I went to my friend's funeral Saturday. It was an overdose death on Sunday. I found out that a client I had that was uh, at my old job, I guess I haven't said it publicly, but uh, I, I quit working with veterans. I resigned from that job, and now I'm working at an outpatient for the court systems um, to so that I'll be able to go to school during the day. But so my last group of clients, um, one that I was very close to, he had been there more than once. Uh, Sunday, I found out that he had overdosed and died, and I'd just seen him two weeks earlier. And then Friday... Yeah, Friday, I found out that another good friend overdosed and died. And he was, um, he had founded a sober living house. Uh, He had helped a ton of people. And so me and my friend were having a conversation of just like, there needs to be, something needs to change institutionally where the people that are the helpers need to be able to, because almost across the board it's like any other job you're protected on at a federal level right you ask for help they're not allowed to fire you da 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 in this industry uh and it may be similar with in the pastoral like i had um i don't know if you listened to the episode with kenzie ois um <laughs> he's gonna be mad i think i butchered his last name i can it's <laughs> oas whatever dude shut up kenzie <laughs> he was a pastor and he got diagnosed with bipolar and he got fired essentially for being bipolar. Um, yeah. So in, in our industry, if you, you can ask for help maybe, and they'll probably like send you to get some help, but you don't have a job when you get back and you possibly don't have a career when you get back. So we need something needs to shift. And my idea was that I wanted to each treatment center should hire each hospital, each treatment center, anything of that sort should hire a clinician that only works for the other clinicians. And each counselor has to meet with them once a week Mm. as part of the job. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's a great idea because it seems, I mean, obviously it's very different, uh, but I do think it, it, it at least seems like there are some parallels that can be drawn between the two, because it's like one of those things where you're constantly dealing. I mean, I can't imagine, dude, I can't imagine having so many people I know um, pass away in such a short amount of time uh, and like constantly having to deal with that. It That takes a toll on any human being. <laughs> and so I, I definitely feel like like some kind of help is, is needed and should be just afforded, given like, hey, if you're going to do this job, here's something that's going to support you. Yeah, yeah this required. is going to support you. Yeah, because you're that's a that's a I mean, you get numb yeah. to it. Yeah, I can't imagine. To, yeah, I can't. I don't have words for it. I can't imagine three people in nine days. 
it's and it, it's like no and and that doesn't even factor into how many this year and it it's that that's why i did an episode a while back where i was just getting so tired and mad and just like i don't want to i don't want to have anything to do with this shit anymore because no other except for maybe you know er doctors first responders military and police no other career really are you going to be that inundated with death and shit like consistently and it it makes it makes me want to hold back from friendships because it's the whole i don't really want to get close to you because i don't know how things are going to shake out uh and but lately it's it's been like the last people you would think it's been really some blind sides like people that have had some years of recovery and you know just that whole one more time and that's what's being really underreported right now during the pandemic and i looked it up it's really interesting they they haven't even published the 2021 numbers yet but there's been like a I think it's a 29% increase in overdose deaths. Wow. Like that's significant. Absolutely. That is insanely significant. But it's kind of, uh, you know, what are you going to do? It's just kind of not really, it's, it's definitely out of the news cycle. Like people are, Oh yeah. Opioid pandemic or opioid epidemic, like whatever. It's it's for sh- like it's fucking crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. So, and then it's just like written off too. It's like it's, that's one of my frustrations is is trying to have conversations with people about these kind of things, and then they're just like, oh well, like they're just this or ju- they're just that, and then people are willing to just write it off. Mm-hmm. Like that's just so wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> insanely so and i know you know this like i'm preaching oh yeah no yeah but it is so so why doesn't god just stop it that's a good segue (laughs) that's a really that's a fantastic segue i was gonna ask you like god uh why why are you letting this or is is god in control of all this we're out of i have a lot of friends right now that are in the i guess I don't know how to label it. I guess I would call it the Christian conspiracy theorists that are convinced, um, you know, we're in the Great Deception, uh, 5G and vaccines and the Antichrist and Revelation and and all this stuff is coming to pass, right? Um I don't remember what the second point I was saying of that was. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's 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 just a there's not much middle ground there anymore. There's there's not much I guess I still do get the feeling that we're in the midst of some kind of shift or upheaval or paradigm change or something i don't really know and it's everything is getting kind of blurred together with politics and government and religion 
and spirit you know the resurgence of like new age spirituality and paganism and wiccan and it's just it's it seems very strange to me and i i wish i could develop like a theory of everything for what i think (laughs) is going on because a lot of it i'm following like normally i'm pretty good at looking at things for face value and then i i always look at what is going on behind the scenes when everyone is distracted by what's put out right in front of them the big shiny thing what's going on behind the big shiny thing and that's Mm. what i have not been able to figure out yeah well i think so for yeah i guess there's two things there um one with like all the like the revelation kind of stuff i mean i just i come from a theological camp where like i grew up in that world but like i don't exist there anymore like those kind of thoughts don't register for me i'm in a completely different paradigm like i mean rapture theology and things like left behind and all that kind of stuff is relatively new in the realm of christian theology and it's also specifically a product of american american evangelical western christianity these kind of ideas don't exist other places it's new it uh started to get popular like there's a guy last name uh, was Nelson Darby. I want to say his name was John, John Nelson Darby sounds right. Who basically started to promote some of the, these ideas over in Europe. People were like, bro, we have no idea what you're talking about. Came to the States, kind of caught on here. And then uh, people realized like the political ramifications it could have. And like rapture theology actually became super popular in the U S when um, the conservative fundamentalist movement married the right-wing political movement and actually started to use it to push um, political agenda. Like, so that's something that just like doesn't even register for me. Ooh. Uh, yeah, like that's, yeah, I mean, you can look this stuff up. There, there's some really helpful books out there about Revelation. I don't want to harp on it too much, but like, I think the best book out there about Revelation is by a gentleman named Michael Gorman who is by no means some crazy liberal progressive dude. He's a Bible scholar, New Testament specifically, and he has a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly, and it is fantastic. So I highly recommend that to people. Um, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Yes. Well, it looks like we we got the topic for part three, but let's not get (laughs) to, because that's something that's been coming up a lot. And, yeah, yeah, we, we can't, we can't, we'll go there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. It's fun. I love that stuff, but like, it's just, um, yeah, that, I mean, that's so totally out there. And then I guess the second thing you're, you're talking about, like, I think what's happening, dude, is like, again, I want to be specific with my language, American Western evangelical Christianity, that is failing because it presented people with a transactional understanding of God. Um, It presented people basically with a list of um, rights and wrongs. It set itself up against science, like it's this or that. It's very black or white thinking. And it's coming to terms where like, people are realizing like, my internal world isn't aligning with the external or like the things I've been taught doesn't match what I'm experiencing in the real world. And so people I think are, are breaking away from that. 
However, the good news is, well, I guess you could call it good news if you want to. I think it's good news is that that's not the only form of Christianity that exists in the world. And in fact, it's actually like a very, very small (laughs) portion of Christianity that exists. And so I think what's happening is people who are falling away from that are actually then being presented with, you know, how wide and how deep and how beautiful the Christian faith and tradition actually is. And there's so much more going on um, that people can then, you know, fall into or, or whatever. And I think open and relational theology is one of those places that people are actually finding uh, refuge, so to speak. Um, yeah. So I think, okay. I think that's kind of what's going on. And, and one more thing I'd add is I think, cause this was my experience. And so maybe I'm projecting this on other people. So forgive me. Um, but there was a quote by guy um, Rayner is his last name. And essentially he said, the Christian of the future will either be a mystic or they won't be a Christian at all. And what he was getting at, because mystic seems like one of those like, ah, weird words, but all it means is somebody who experiences God. That's the, the basic, you know, understanding. And so what he was saying is people are looking for an experiential faith. They're looking for like, I grew up being told about like having a relationship with Jesus and all this kind of stuff but it never happened. All the transformation and all the stuff that I was told, if I believe the right things, you know, knowledge that will get me where I need to go never happened. And what the Christian mystics um, have been doing and saying for centuries is like, wait a minute, there's deeper forms of knowing you need your mind. Don't ignore it, but also you have your heart and your body. And so there's these experiential ways of knowing things. And then you can know God through these experiences And so what he's saying is the transactional understanding of God is not going to work. People need to know experientially. And that's why things like paganism and new age and, you know, whatever are starting to rise up again, because people are looking for that experience and they're finding some kind of spiritual experience in these other, um, I I don't have a word for it, like these other realms, other places. (laughs) And I think that's doing something for people. And so I think there's an opportunity there as well in Christianity to say, like, wait a minute, guys, like, you don't have to find it there. We've had this in our tradition since the beginning. I would argue Jesus was a mystic. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. And so, like, it's been there from the beginning. We just haven't seen it. And so I think that, that's another another part of it. I don't know. Yeah, that's and that's that's what I that is the loose appeal that demonology wiccan uh occult that sort of stuff has has such an interest to me it's why drugs interest appeal to me is because it's that that it's very experiential and it gives me that sense of connectedness and knowing that i so desperately crave and i have to check myself because I oftentimes I think what what I'm what I want from God is like a hit or a high. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you yeah, know, and it's I, 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 I laugh because I, I get it. Yeah. And I, I got those. I used to get them fairly often. It was really early on in my recovery. And it seems as though that part of my heart and spirit has like calcified over Mm. to use some pineal (laughs) pineal gland speak. Uh, 
that it's kind of hardened up and I'm just left here like what the fuck like what I I need I need some of that maybe I or maybe I don't maybe it's the uh, milk and soft food versus hard food thing maybe God wants me to grow past that I don't really know I just know that it seems like they have been few and far in between mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely dude and that was like one of my I mean biggest issues I think last time I hung out with you I was telling you this but like part of my issue uh, being a pastor was that line from Bo Burnham where he's doing comedy and he's talking about his depression and he tells the people like my job is to get up on a stage and provide you something that I can't even provide for myself and that's the exact that's what I felt as a pastor because I like intellectually I knew I knew the stuff like I've read a shit ton of books like an ungodly amount of books like I could convince you I'm a Calvinist that I'm an Arminian that I'm open theist whatever I know the stuff intellectually but I was, I didn't know God. I didn't experientially have this, this knowledge. And so there was a disconnect and that was super difficult because like, again, in my mind, I had these logical ideas and conclusions and whatever, but it wasn't producing fruit to use like super Christian language. Um, And so leaving and then engaging, you know, working with the spiritual director, um, opening myself up to Christian spirituality and practices, uh, contemplative practices, centering prayer and stuff like that has done a world of difference. And now I, 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 I'm feel like I'm (laughs) actually finally found that thing that I was looking for. Now I want to try to gift it to people. But the problem is like, and any mystic, like you try to read their books, you you'll understand this is you're trying to put into words something that is like, ineffable exactly perfect word ineffable all right well so where (laughs) where do you want to start on this i guess with some definitions or i don't know you said you had some notes so you yeah i guess we should start with some definitions yeah so open and relational theology uh so i'll break it down really simple i'll give i'll talk about open first um and then we'll jump into relational and then like, if, if any questions come up or like anything like that, um, just like say something. Cause yeah, I, I had, just... yeah. Cause I had my, uh, we talked about it in our, uh, Patreon small group. There was one big, um, pushback and I oh, cool. think, uh, what, what did somebody say? I think Chris, uh, said it all sounds good. He, he said, but I'm just waiting for, the one Achilles heel that makes it all unravel that when I hear that, I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not a thing. So, but yeah, continue. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, uh, so open, basically when we in open and relational theology, the open bit is making a claim about time and how time works. Um, and it tends to line up with uh, what we know about time from like a scientific perspective. And basically this is what it's saying. The future is genuinely opened and has not yet been determined. And so this is different from some classical forms of theism because you have two, like typically you're presented two options. One within like Calvinism, for example, meticulous providence, everything that will happen ever past, present, future, God meticulously planned. God decided all of it is the cause of all of it. Everything that happens ever, God is the reason for it. God planned it, wrote it, 
whatever meticulous providence so that definitely doesn't jive with open theism in fact calvinists like to call open theist heretics uh because it's literally the opposite <laughs> the open theists are saying no yeah. the future doesn't doesn't exist yet you can't know it because it doesn't exist yet um whereas like you have the arminian perspective which is probably what most people grew up with um it's what i grew up with which is basically uh god knows the future but god didn't uh plan the future it's like god we have free will still basically um i would argue that's incoherent because if god knows the future then the future has to be set because god can't know things that are false that would go against what it means for god to know something and so if the future if if god knows the future then it has to be set it has to be that's what it is which means humans don't actually have free will and for me, I want to say that we have genuine but also limited free will because, you know, our free will is um, constricted by past experience, you know, geographic location of where we were born, all sorts of things. But we it, still have genuine free will. Is there an option where God, where essentially there's an infinite number of possibilities and each one of those possibilities has been completely seen and recorded and god just knows all of those possibilities so that whichever choice you make he's seen that too is that a yeah. is that like uh embedded in one of the theories or yeah so that so at first it sounded like you were describing what's called molinism which is a very minority position within Protestant theology. You find it some in Catholic theology and Molinism basically said, says at the beginning of, you know, whatever, before creation, God sat down, not literally, but God sat down and thought about like, okay, these are all, here's the infinite possibilities of creation and how it's going to play out looked at all of them and decided this one is the best possible one the and best then put of it, all possible and worlds. then put it forth. Right. And yeah. then put it forth and that you and I are currently living in the best of all possibilities. That's Mullenism. Um, but then where you started to go actually sounded like more like open theism because you were, it sounded like you were describing a God who knows the future as a realm of possibilities. So God knows like, um, Basically, I mean, as a realm of possibilities or potentialities is another word that gets used. Um, however, doesn't know it 100%. So God could be 99.99% sure that this is what's going to happen. But if that thing doesn't happen, God already has a plan in place where God can respond and act accordingly. So like for me, for example, my wardrobe consists of black and gray mostly. I have like three shirts that have color in them. So in the morning, I have a genuine choice to decide which shirt I'm going to put on. God knows with a great deal of, you know, um, probability that I'm going to wear a black or gray shirt. Like 99.9% .9 of the time, that's what's going to happen. But maybe just maybe today I'm feeling like, you know, the light blue shirt that I have, I'm going to put it on. So it's not, it's not. And then that happens. Okay, great. There was like a 0.1% chance of it happening, but that's what ended up happening. But then God already has a plan contingent based upon that unfolding. And okay. so that's just one basic thing that happens, me putting on a shirt. And so now take that and multiply that to literally everything that happens always. 
God. So God is not dumb. Some people try to say that an open and relational God is somehow dumb. God literally knows everything that there is to know always. However, the future does not yet exist, and therefore God cannot know it with certainty, but only as a realm of possibility, potentialities. Does that make sense? So it's almost yes, like, it does. It like does. We're a, li- we're a little kid walking in the woods and it's super dark outside. And God is like holding our hand with a flashlight. God can see into the future far better than we can and knows it way greater than we can because God is still all knowing. However, none of it is set in stone. So be- because it just simply does not exist. Exactly. Hmm. It does not exist yet to be to be known. And that would be an example of, of God's self-limiting. So because what that was a, an issue I, I wrote down of anytime people bring up things that God cannot do, I don't understand. And, and maybe it's the verbiage, but how can God not do anything if he is God unless Mm -hmm. it's an example of he is is somehow Mm self-limiting yeah that's a really good question and that that's one that gets asked a lot and that's actually kind of like where open theists like to get into the weeds a little bit uh, because they don't like the idea of a self-limiting God and so um, what an open theist would say is that God is nest well here so i'm gonna yeah, i don't want to do paint think? all up op- yeah i don't want to paint all open theists with a broad brush because there are different perspectives and opinions within open and rational theology i'll present you with the one that i like best <laughs> right. um and it's been put forth and you know worked out by a gentleman named thomas j ord and to answer your question um it would basically say i ascribe to what's called essential kenosis which means that God is necessarily loving. So God's very essence is love. And everything else flows from that. And because God is necessarily loving, there are simply things that God cannot do because it is outside of God's nature. In the same way that you wouldn't like talk shit about a horse because it's not flying into outer space. Because that's not the horse's nature. It's, it's not in the <laughs> essence. And so God, in my perspective, isn't self-limiting because, well, I'll explain why in a second, but God necessarily is loving. And because God is necessarily loving, there are simply things God cannot do. And so why I say I'd explain this because let me like give you a situation. Self-limiting God to me is still a moral monster. Because it means God could prevent genuine evil, but chooses not to. Okay. And we yep. could, we that could makes say, sense. We could say something like, oh, it's for God's glory or whatever. And that's typically the argument against it. And that's fine if that floats your boat. Perfect. For me, it doesn't. Um, and so an example would be like, say you and I were hanging out um, at the swimming pool in my backyard that doesn't really exist. I wish I had one, but I don't. And we were sitting there hanging out and the neighbor's little daughter, she was over swimming in the pool. And some guy broke into the backyard who really didn't like little girls who swim in their neighbor's pool. And he 
proceeded to try to drown this little girl. You and I were sitting there and we're both bigger than this person. We could genuinely prevent it from happening, but we decide, eh, not going to. Nobody would say, wow, Josh and Jed, they're the best. They're really good guys. And in fact, we probably, <laughs> we could get charged with like, I don't know, something. It Negligent homicide. Yeah, exactly. We would get in trouble and no one would say that we were good people for that. And so why do we allow God off the hook when God could genuinely prevent evil and doesn't? And so for me, I say it's not that God is self-limiting because that makes God a moral monster if God could prevent evil and doesn't. But because God's very essence, God's very nature is love, there are things God can't do. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And one of those, one of them, one of them would be coercion. Co- coercion is not loving. So God doesn't like just step in and overtake you and prevent something. Um, so that's that's kind of how the argument would never go. in this view, you'd have to say never because <laughs> mm, that that's going to be. And I don't know if it's if it's if it's too soon for it, but my main objection and I'm hoping maybe it fits into it um, is intercession and intercessory prayer. And I'm just speaking for myself anecdotally, I there just have been times when I prayed for something that came to pass or there were situations of and you're grinning. So I hope this is going, I I need this to go right. There've been times when it's like, yeah, that was a, that was a divine intervention. This, this God stepped in and did something. Okay. So how does that reconcile with, open theology yeah so that that actually gets into um the relational bit for sure and i'm smiling because that was like one of the big things for me (laughs) it was like well this doesn't make sense and so now i would put forth that an open and relational frame framework is the only one where prayer actually makes sense oh if you're a calvinist If you're if you're a Calvinist and believe and believe that everything is already planned and set before you, prayer makes zero sense. Oh my god. You can't petition you can't petition God because God already has a plan. You can pray because you know a, a, a Calvinist would say prayer is good for you, it shapes your heart, this kind of stuff. But petitionary prayer makes no sense in that framework. Why did Uh, I never think of that? Yeah, it makes no sense. It doesn't work. And it's the same for with an Arminian perspective where God knows the future, but didn't determine it because the future's already set. So even if you pray, God, God is in this, in those two perspectives, God is outside of time. Like God exists outside of time, which means God like literally can't work within time. Like it's not coherent. Um, so prayer doesn't work. It doesn't matter. You're not going to influence God to change anything because it's already set. But within the realm of open and relational theology, so when we talk about relational, this means that God literally is in relationship with creation. Creatures can impact God in the same way that God can impact creatures. And a relational God is not a God that is aloof, that is somehow far away, but rather is a God that is present in and through all things in every moment, constantly working to bring about the most amount of love and good in all situations. 
So God is never coercive, but is always influencing, always trying to bring about the most amount of good. However, God necessarily needs people or creatures to respond and work alongside of God to bring about these good things. And so when we pray, we're actually opening up a realm of possibilities, new possibilities saying, God, I am here. I'm open to you. I'm open to your influence. I want what is good. I want what is beautiful. I want what is true. I want to cooperate with what you're doing. And you're asking, you're, you're literally influencing, having the ability to impact the divine and the divine in turn can respond to you as well. And so what's difficult then is that God in this perspective can't just say, okay, great. Jed was such a nice guy. His prayer meant so much to me, flip a switch and now everything's good, but rather you opened up a realm of possibilities and chose to cooperate. And now God can continue to influence and have others, you know, accept and agree to cooperate as well. So it's, it's relational. It's, it's participatory. It's not, you see what I'm saying? So prayer makes sort of, yeah. Yeah. So, so then I guess dumb short answer, does that, does that mean that he can and, and does still intervene, I guess. I I don't know if there's like a, if, if I guess a, yeah, no, it's so it's it's I difficult guess things because like it's healing or I don't know. I don't even know really the question I'm asking healing or. Um, you know, just those those desperate prayers that seem to get answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's not it's not that God is intervening because for God to intervene, you have to assume that God is somewhere else. And that God oh, magically shit. swoops in, swoops into the picture and then does a nice thing for you and then bails out again within the open and relational perspective. And even within classic Christianity, all I'm talking about is the, the term omnipresent, that God is always present, right? Even in the Bible, it says, where can I go to escape your love? Like I can make my bed in hell or in heaven and still you're there. So like, what do I do? Um, so it's not, this isn't a new idea. I'm the present. We're just assuming God is actually present in and through all things always. So God doesn't have to swoop in and intervene because God's already working. And so like in prayer, we're opening ourselves up to the possibility. And also like, cause God's always, you have to remember too, God is because of God's nature. God's essence is love necessarily. God is always working to bring about the most good and love out of every situation always, but God is not going to coerce anybody or any creature to bring about that love, but rather influence constantly. And then people can respond. Creation can respond even down to the smallest, you know, molecular level can respond to these promptings of God. Some people call it the Holy spirit or your conscious or whatever. So it's not that God is intervening or not intervening. It's that we're actually opening ourselves up and participating with the things that God is already trying to do because things like death are not good. That's not God's will. God, you know, God says, it's not my will that any shall perish, but that should, that all shall have eternal life. You know, God, God is not a God of suffering of death of, of evil and destruction, but rather of, you know, the fruits of the spirit, um, peace, patience, you know, kindness, love. Those are the things that God is about. And so we're 
God's constantly trying to bring about those things, but requires our help, our participation, our cooperation to do so. so does, God does yeah. Does that make sense? It, yes. Yeah, it does. Does it say, does it speak to any like salvific issues or what's what, how does the view of salvation fit in with that? Or, or is it? Yeah. So salvation would kind of be thought of differently. Um, not super differently though, because you would still say that um, Jesus <laughs> had a unique relationship um, with God. I still believe in the divinity of, of Jesus. Um, like I, I affirm all of the, the basic tenets of the Christian faith. But when it comes to salvation, you're not looking at this I, the same idea of like this, you know, cosmic issue. And there's this separation that's been created between God and people. And God's like super pissed. So he sends his son, kills his son in our place. And now everything's good. Um, that doesn't quite fly. But rather it's like uh, it's instead of atonement, it's more an understanding of attunement attuning to a reality that's already been present here the whole time. Like for me, and now I'm not speaking for all open theists. So don't hear me doing that. I'm saying this is Josh Patterson right now. Um, Salvation is more so about uh, attuning oneself to what God is doing. Um, Agreeing to participate in what God is trying to bring about and stepping into um, the love that is, that is already present. And so Jesus had a unique relationship to God in that way. Um, I would talk about Jesus as like an emergent property of the universe. And like, because, you know, it's not somehow that God magically intervened again, because I couldn't say that as an open theist. So I'd say Jesus is an emergent property of the universe in the same way that you and I are, but is somehow uniquely, um, Christ at the same time. Um, and so like it, it gets dicey because there's no one answer to this question. That's why I'm stumbling. Right. Yeah. I I, I guess, well, I guess, I guess then I could just reframe it because that that's another along with hell and heaven. Um, I guess one of the other things that has that my view has changed or I'm looking for more clarity is what what exactly was the purpose of jesus coming and dying on the cross like what was that whole deal about yeah so that that's a scary question well it's a scary question be and i'm going to give you a scary answer because i and again i don't think this is necessarily open and relational theology this is josh patterson um, open re- the relational theology has gotten me there, or at least has helped. But I, again, this is not all open theists. They would not all agree with this. I would say Jesus did not have to die on the cross. There wasn't some kind of like magical thing that happened in that specific moment. I more look towards the incarnation as somehow being um, more powerful. The 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 fact that the God of the universe, the creator of everything that is the, the ground of being cared about humans, these minuscule, stupid creatures that live on a tiny little rock 
in the vastness of, you know, a universe that is just one universe and many, many, you know, whatever. God cared about people enough to become one of them. And the universal became uh, particular in the person of Jesus. And that, that in itself is like, what more do you do you want? What more do you need? It's, it's an awareness. It's an awakening to the fact that like God is love and has been loved this whole time. Always has been, always will be. We just didn't know it yet. And Mm. so Jesus, Jesus was uh, uh, the perfect revelation to use the language of Hebrews, the, the book of the Bible, the perfect revelation of who God is. If you want to know what God looks like, look at the person of Jesus. Um, and so Jesus came more to show us what God is like than anything else. Um, and I think on the cross, what happened was the creator allowed create its creation to do the very worst possible thing imaginable deicide, literally killing your creator, killing the divine. But like, cause that, cause that's the worst thing that, that people could do kill the divine but God would would was in the person of Jesus showing us that he would rather allow something like like accept that fate, allow that to happen than to like, you know, destroy people or something like that. Like I see it as a natural outflowing of love. So the cross reveals the ugliness of creation, but the beauty of God, the love of God. Um, and like the words that I'm reminded of is like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing you know, like the words of Jesus on the cross. Um, yeah, that I've, I've, I've used that many times. It's, it's, that's such, 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 such powerful words. Like, cause it's insanely just, powerful. <laughs> it's, it's so, I, I even think, yeah, it's so many times in history, you can really just see it's like you have no idea what you're doing. Like, because if you did, like the 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 inference there is that if you did, you would never do it. Like, exactly. You knew what you were doing. I, I can even even I can even look at at my own past and just be like, my God, Jed, like. You don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and within that realm for open and relational the, the, uh, theologians, creatures in creation are writing the story of history together with God. And so like God is still, again, trying to bring about the most good. And then people tend to just fuck it up because that's what we do. Um, but then it's still, still the message of the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. God is still saying, no, we are going, we are in this together. We are, because I still believe that at the end of the day, somehow all things will be made right. Now I can't be a full on universalist because that would require coercion. There, there's a chance that some people would reject God, even after seeing everything good and beautiful and true. And so I need to allow for that intellectually. I need to allow for that to exist, but, um, to use the language of, again, Thomas J. Ord, uh, he believes in the relentless love of God. God's love is is never going to give up. It's never going to stop. Your so love that, is relentless. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh. it's not going to stop. So there's the, the possibility of universalism is real, but it still leaves, it still leaves room for people who decide, mm. nope, I'm good. God so, and 
yeah Oof, forgive them yeah um so is what what are the scriptural supports for this i, I suppose yeah like all this it sounds great so far sounds great it is i guess where did it come from uh what's what's the foundation it's standing on and and then i guess what are the critiques to it oh sure yeah so foundation wise it's something that has been intuited um within the christian tradition for a very long time we see writers i mean like early church fathers i mean they're obviously not using the words we're open and relational but they're intuiting and putting forth ideas um that fall under the category open and relational since forever but even if you want to just turn to the bible and look at scripture just go to the old testament god changes god's mind in the old testament or at least that's what it says happens okay so you can say you know a lot of people who take issue will be like you know have a very specific like inerrant view of scripture um but then when you say oh well look like god changes his mind god repents in the old testament multiple times it says god repented <laughs> you know if, if if god is yeah what's that about like, and if the future Wait. is set and if all of this is whatever god changes mind humans like mo like god's about to do something and then moses is like yo that doesn't really seem to fit your vibe your character and god's like yeah moses you're right good looking out and then god changes god's mind like god is constantly working with with people throughout scripture engaging prophets in inviting them to do things they change their minds something else happens and god constantly is going along with those things i mean even the story of jonah like what jonah makes no sense if you don't have an open relational framework because god asked jonah to do something jonah's like nah i'm not about that and god continues to pursue jonah and then eventually guess what it happens jonah does the thing and then jonah's still an asshole afterwards <laughs> and is super angry <laughs> But like it's it's there it's on the pages of scripture we've just been basically what this is the josh patterson 30 second ex explanation for what i think happened greek philosophy influenced christianity heavily which makes sense because people like plato and aristotle were essentially contemporaries of paul we don't think that way um because like we separate for some reason like the Bible gets separated in our minds. Mm -hmm. Like he's interacting with these kind of people, Greek philosophy and this idea of perfection and things like that influenced a Christian understanding of God. And it changed over time. And then you get these ideas of God can't change. God can't do this, 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 whatever. And there are all these Greek understandings of perfection that shifted things, but that's never how scripture was presented or, or like that wasn't the, the Jewish mindset when scripture was being written. Um, there are ideas that we bring into the text. And so if you are able to separate yourself from those ideas and then try to look at, come to the Bible and say, okay, now I'm going to impose or assume an open and relational perspective. When you start reading scripture, you're like, holy shit, it's been here the whole time. God is constantly relating with people. God is constantly changing God's mind. God is constantly changing his plans, his ways, everything in response to creation throughout the entire bible and so it's like it's there i can't give you a verse that says like and jesus declared that yahweh is open and relational you know john 
317 or something. Right. (laughs) Well, what about what do you do with the Jesus, but like the verses that seem to propagate the idea of, uh, I'm not going to say the plans for you, but. Well, what about prophecy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so again, I would I would say like prophecy still is prophecy is still people opening themselves to what God is doing and then trying to to speak about what is going to happen and then creation still has the ability to respond or reject those things. So like it's, it, I mean, it still fits. Um, I mean, if you want honesty, if you want to ask really difficult questions about prophecy um, and maybe things about like, oh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, stuff like that, um, I could give you hermeneutical answers, um, but that might not be satisfying within the realm of open relational theology. I could hook you up with Tom Ward. And Tom, you could ask Tom all the hard crap in the world. Um, but it, it, I guess basically what I would say is this, all Christians put a, a box on things. We all have a hermeneutic. We all have a canon within a canon. Like it just happens. Oh, define hermeneutic. Oh, hermeneutic is like the, the lens. Mr. Smarty pants. <laughs> the lens or the, the lens or the tool that you, the lens is a better word. The lens that you read scripture through. Okay. I knew that that was just for the people word up. Yeah. For the people. <laughs> so, I knew, I knew hermeneutic. Good guy. Good guy. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the lens in which you use to interpret the Bible, because when we read scripture, everybody is interpreting always mm-hmm. like when you read anything you're interpreting the newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, a book, you know, whatever, because you bring your experience, you bring your past, you know, all this stuff. Gotcha. 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 You're always interpreting. So hermeneutics is important to note, you know, what lens am I bringing to scripture? And so when I have a open and relational hermeneutic, that means I'm coming to scripture, acknowledging that I'm using an open and relational lens. My default is Jesus. I read scripture with the Jesus centered lens, um, which ultimately I think if you take that to its logical conclusion, gives you open and relational theology. Um, but that's a whole argument. And so all of us have that. All of us have a box and some boxes are just better than others. And so I'm arguing that my box, the open and relational box is better than um, some of the other boxes that you can paint out of, you know, scripture. I think it makes better sense of the entire narrative. I think it makes better sense of Jesus um, out of how God acts and behaves throughout the pages of scripture. Now, sure, you can find verses that go against it um, and that challenge the view, but you can find that for anything. Slavery, for example. Yeah. I don't think (laughs) slavery is a great thing, and I don't think you do either. However, in the Bible, you can find verses that say, this is how you should buy slaves. This is how you should treat them. You can beat the shit out of them as long as you don't kill them that night. If they die the next day, that's fine. Just don't make, just make sure they don't die tonight. So you can find verses to support whatever you want, but I'm arguing, yeah, yeah, I'm arguing yeah, yeah. A, tra- a trajectory, uh, a full reading. Yeah, does that makes sense. That was a long. It does. Answer. No, no, no. That that was good. Um, 
that's most uh that was most of my questions i had on it i guess because this and this is probably something that needs some reframing in in my life i guess is does it speak at all to sin and uh punishment or blessings versus curses or you know guilt and shame uh legalism that sort of thing um yeah i mean i definitely think it does when it comes or, or to... what would the implications be i guess is a is a better question for that yeah so like with sin sin i still think sin is real i mean i think it, sin is like uh demonstrably real right like turn on the news <laughs> things are not as they should be um it, so like for me if God is constantly always working to bring about the most amount of good in every situation and is always fully present, any time that we as humans reject or deny the promptings that God is, you know, the things that God is trying to bring about, I would call that sin. Um, mm. And so you could say that we, yes, we have a, we have a sin problem. Um, but also I wouldn't want to ascribe to something like original sin or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I mean, original sin doesn't make sense in general. Like it, it just doesn't. And if it does, if you want to say original sin is real, um, then you also have to believe in critical race theory. I said it, you can go Google that and find out why that connects. Um, <laughs> that's another episode. Oh. Um, but also original, if you believe in original sin, then when there's like the Bible verse that says, you know, in Adam, all people are, you know, mm -hmm. um, have received sin basically, but in the person, Jesus, all people have been forgiven. Then there you go. Now you can be a universalist. Um, yeah. But <laughs> so like, yeah. it, it's not original sin. It's not this idea that people are inherently garbage, but rather that the, the line of good and evil doesn't run between us and them. Um, it's not christians and everyone else or you know whatever but rather it, it runs line of good and evil runs down the middle of each and every single one of us you and me we both have the potential for immense goodness and we also have the potential for unthinkable evil and so like the 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 question then becomes like are we going to choose to participate with the god of love or are we going to reject that and tie into something else so like sin is still very real there's still a quote-unquote sin problem and salvation um tapping into that god who is love and and working with um what god is trying to do is still a transformation it's still a it still quote solves the sin problem because you're stepping into what you were created to do in the beginning which is partner with god to bring about god's will in all of creation so so does that make sense it's it's still it does thing. yes 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 it does. I, li I like that um i like that well any uh any other things you would like to say on it that we didn't get to um i guess just two things really quickly just on relational that i think is um super important um is one 
when we talk about the Trinity, which I know is a very difficult thing to talk about, and there's a quote, something along the lines of like, anytime you try to talk about the Trinity, you bore your own heresy, uh, which <laughs> I think is true. <laughs> but uh, at, at the very least, I think we can say that the Trinity is relational. It's a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, however you want to break that down, I don't really know. But like, whatever, when we say God and say God is triune, is Trinity, what we're saying is God is inherently relational. God has always been relational and always will be because it's God's essence. God's nature is relationship. And another way to talk about salvation is actually being invited into that relationship, the ongoing relationship of the Trinity, stepping into that relationship. That's how like Eastern Orthodox people would talk about it. Um, but God is relational by nature. So I'd, I'd want to throw that out there for people to think about. But also I'd want to let you know that like, if, if, like most people say that God is loving. That's not new. That's not wild. That's not crazy. Um, but in order for that to actually make sense, God has to be able to re relate with people genuinely, which means God has to be able to give and receive love. Within classical theism, Calvinism and Arminianism, God is um, impassable, meaning God can't change. God doesn't change. Um, but a God who is unchanging cannot, by defini definition, be relational in any meaningful way. Um, because if you love God, God's just, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, you can say, God, I love you, or God, you know, go fuck yourself. And it doesn't matter to God because God is impassable. You can't change God. So you can't say God is loving or relational in any meaningful way because you have no ability to influence God. And then also at the same time, there's no way for God to influence you back. I mean, actually, the, the classic definition and understanding of God is impassable and, and God just finds refuge in God's self and is just happy within God and finds happiness and glory within God's glory and happiness itself. Um, that's the, the normal understanding, which means anytime we say God loves us or anything like that, it's not coherent with that perspective. So God has to be able to relate to people if you want to be able to say anything meaningful about God being loving or even God being wrathful. If God is impassable yeah. and only finds pleasure in God's self, then when God is wrathful, the only person God can be angry at is God. <laughs> because nothing outside oh, of God, nothing outside yeah. of God impacts God. If nothing outside of God can influence God, then when we say God's angry, God's mad at himself. That's oh, the only logical. That's, yeah, that's like, and that's very simple logic. It's very also. simple. And so Why? God, open and relational theology <laughs> is oh, intuitive man. and it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And the Bible, you the Bible, it, it works. Um, yeah. And it has, it gets God off it. This, so if you want the reason I started exploring open and relational theology is because of the problem of evil. And the problem of evil is the number one reported reason why people lose their faith, walk away from Christianity. Um, and open and relational theology solves that problem. Um, you might not like the answer that it puts forth that God can't genuinely prevent or God can't unilaterally prevent genuine evil by God's self, but rather invites us to participate to prevent those things together. Um, you might not like that answer, but it gets God off the hook for evil because you don't have to say that God preordained and orchestrated the Holocaust. 
nor do you have to say that God allowed the Holocaust. You can say that, that the Holocaust was against God's will, that it grieved God, that God was present in and through every moment, suffering alongside of grieving with the Jewish people as they were, you know, exterminated, you know, being affected deeply by the, the longings and the sufferings of these people, while at the same time working to squeeze the most good and beauty out of the situation possible. And you don't have to say God is responsible for it. And that's why I'm an open and relational theist. Oh, man. <laughs> that was very well said and very um, illustrative, man. That was good. That's All good right. Word. <laughs> yeah, it is a good word, right? Illustrative. I think, I hope it's the correct word. <laughs> Illustrative, illustrative. We're going to go with that. I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thanks, man. So that was Josh Patterson. Um, we're going to do a part three about Revelation. It's, it's, uh, Sounds fun. yeah, we will do that. And, uh, once again, you can find him on his show, Rethinking Faith, uh, wherever you find podcasts. Um, he plays hockey. I found that out. He scored two goals and an I assist. Last uh, night. He plays left wing. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah. Right on. All man. right. All right, Josh. And I, I have a list of resources that I can text you if you Yeah, I'll put them in the show notes. notes. Yeah. Yes, I'll send perfect. it to you. Just some some really good introductory stuff for anybody who's like wants to explore more and wants to hear it articulated way better than I'm able to do. <sighs> awesome, yeah. man. Dying dogs Some nights Not kissing